Yeah, there are, there are rubrics for that, you know. I'm sure we can we can find them somewhere. Make that priest sit down, and make the old guy that thinks he can sit down stand up. Anyway, usually I start with a prayer that I have, and I didn't I didn't bring the prayer that I wanted. I've got actually it's over in the church, so we won't bother. We have just prayed anyway, so. And prayed well, I think. Um, in we started out some weeks back talking about despondency, uh, and I sort of, from my side of this, sort of took it where I thought it ought to go. So, what I've been, I've been reading material lately that mentions despondency, so the whole concept is on my mind. And some of the saints of the church have 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 associated the word despondency with another word that is found commonly in, in Orthodox spiritual disciplines, and it's called uh, acidity or acidie, uh, which means basically spiritual slothfulness or spiritual laziness. Uh, and I don't think that the, the writers of the material we've been looking at so far in despondency were talking that. However, uh, that's a problem uh, that occurs for us is spiritual despondency or spirit or acidity. Uh, remember that we are created, God creates us in the beginning, image and likeness. An image is that which is reflects God or is capable of reflecting God. And so that God can look at us and see himself in us, uh, like mirrors almost, but it's it's substantive, not just just a reflection. But likeness is that which has an eternal quality, so we're constantly going into it and getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it should be, we, we should understand it, that our job is to participate with God in, in likeness is inherent in us by his creation of us. So, so Im, image is inherent in, because of likeness is that which we, how we participate, what we attain when we participate with God in that practice. So everything we've been talking about is a whole part of the process of participating with God in our becoming more and more and more uh, the image of God or, or becoming more uh, reflective of him. And when he says, out, out of my sight, I never knew you, it's because he looks at us and sees we didn't do anything and he doesn't see himself as in a mirror. That's where we want to go, where he sees himself as in a mirror. <laughs> And then when you look at your sins, you're going, oh, gosh, how will this ever happen? You know, well, with God, all things are possible as long as we cooperate with him. So what we've been looking at are ways in which the devil tries to keep us from doing this so as to in, inspire in us spiritual despondency in the sense of depression and, de and being down and despairing about life and not having any sense of meaning. Uh, and we've looked at the stages of sin and the way to stop sin is what's called the first motions, to arrest sin in the first motion. And the enemy uses first motions constantly to make us fall. So, you know, one way can be, it was, well, 
this doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> so he can tell us that and we buy into it and then we don't learn it. But it does have to do with us and, we, and that's just a lie that, that deceives us. So we want to interrupt the first motions. This is one of the basic principles of the spiritual life in orthodoxy. Uh, and so what I, what I want to do now, instead of looking at snakebite letters, which we have done in past weeks, is just look at some of the things we need to do to interrupt first motions. And I've listed them on the board here for you to see. Uh, first, it's imperative that we recognize our true kingdom. We may be Americans, and we may be in the best the world has to offer, but it's still not the kingdom of God. Uh, and we have to get that through our heads. This is not God's kingdom. Maybe close as far as earthly kingdoms, maybe the best that history's ever produced, but it's still not what God is going to produce. Uh, and that's imperative for us. Knowing that, <coughs> our job is to be good and faithful citizens in this country, render unto Caesar. So we have duties to this state, regardless of what we might think about it. We have duties to any state in which we live. You know, we Americans are great. We like to go elsewhere in the world and think we can act like Americans. <laughs> and we get ourselves, our people get themselves in all kinds of trouble because they try to act like they have American privileges instead, with American privileges rather than in the, country, the privileges of the country in which they find themselves. In the 60s, it used to be called the ugly American. Uh, so some of you, I can tell those of you who are old enough to understand that because you nod your heads, you remember it. So... I can tell the younger people, too, because they just look at me blankly. <laughs> it's funny how that is. Um, anyway, we, we, are, we, are, we are to be good and, and, and faithful citizens, but we need to learn that our, our true kingdom is not of this world. It will manifest itself ultimately in and through this world, but it's not of this world. And that's where we're going. It's important that we get that straight. The enemy will try to lead us to think otherwise and to confuse being a citizen of the United States with being a Christian. Big mistake. Second one, uh, oh, let me just back up. Part of which I have to, Father Patrick would shoot me if I didn't bring this up. So uh, it's called, when we do that, when we confuse the state with our purpose and our true kingdom, the kind of religion at which we arrive is called civil religion. And that is, it's just like a state religion. Read, read books first, read books written by people in the 19th century and, and notice what they say about God. And then ask yourself, how does this agree with Christianity? Well, in broad general senses, it does, but in specifics, it does not. So, that's what civil religion is. So just because someone stands up and says, well, I believe in God Almighty. Well, so even demons believe and they tremble. So that means nothing. And the idea is to get us to believe in civil religion, which is just a form of, a, of something called deism, which is just a form of taking everything that we believe and, and, and honing it down to general, generalizations and then holding the generalizations generalizations to be absolute. 
for example. God is one, but he's also three. Three persons of one essence, unconfused and undivided. That is the teaching of the church. So when we say God is one, we can't reduce the Trinity to one or three or three in one. It's far more than that. And if we reduce it to one, that's what deism does. Do you believe in God? Yeah. Okay, well, you must be a Christian. I remember in the 60s when George Harrison came out with My Sweet Lord. I thought, oh, hallelujah, George Harrison's become a Christian. <laughs> Have you ever listened to the words of that song? He's talking about Krishna. Yeah. So he wasn't a Christian. So we have to be aware of that. We have to know our true kingdom. Before we start any of this, we have to be clear about that. The second one, we have to learn to live by objective truth. This journey is going to take us into objectivity. That is, not operating on the basis of our feelings or our emotions. Following Christ at times has no feeling whatsoever. Or we have to operate according to our feelings. <laughs> you know. And we do it every day. I mean, we get up, and how many of us get up at, in the morning to go to work and are actually excited about the day ahead of us? You know, oh, man, give me that cup of coffee and get me. Oh, I wish I could retire now, you know, and, do, and whatever we think. Um, so we have to get up. We do it objectively, and the spiritual life is like this too. It's a learned spiritual discipline, and if we're serious, God will take us where we will have to practice this. And it will interrupt the first motions, and the devil tries to make us think that we can't do this, or that we should operate on the basis of feelings, or if because we don't have feelings, we've somehow fallen away by the, or fallen by the wayside. Or we need to go to the church, which helps give us these feelings, which I would say that's a red flag right there. Learn true spiritual goals. The foremost goal of the Christian life is to encounter God. The foremost goal. So are we encountering God? And, you know, if we aren't, is it his fault, my fault, the fault of this parish? Or is it the inner fault? What's holding us back? You know, I, I've, I've said this to a couple of you individually, but what I'm, what I'm finding is when I read... I look for books that introduce me to God. And, I, and if they don't introduce me to God, I don't think I really want to read them. Now, in orthodoxy, the word theology means what we say about God, and it implies an encounter with him. So we speak of what we have seen. In the, in the rest of the world separated from us, theology means speculating about the divine. So even a pagan who doesn't believe anything in Christian, about, about Christianity can be a theologian. But only a Christian who's drawn into the mystery of God can be a theologian. And that's what we mean by orthodoxy. And every one of us is to be a theologian. Every one of us. That's part of the goal of the Christian life, to become theologians. It's not for him and for me or the guys that go to seminary. And this is another problem, too. Guys go to seminary and all they get is head knowledge. They may as well be not theologians, unless they talk about the encounter with God. And Orthodox spirituality does talk about that. It does focus on that. And yet it's so easy for us to miss it. We don't want to miss it, so we need to learn our spiritual goals. It's important that we learn submission and obedience. 
Oh, we Americans, I yield to no man. You know, oh, we love that line. I will, we must obey God and not men. That's how we get away with doing what we want. But in orthodoxy, obedience is a key word. And it's very simple. Often it just means doing what is told us, even if we don't think it's right or if we don't agree with it or whatever. And we'll use all kinds of excuses to get out of that. The only time we should disobey the priest is when he advocates heresy or immorality. And then we have an obligation to say no. Otherwise, if we, if, otherwise we just have to do as we're told. Remember many years ago, I hope I haven't told this story, but I tell everything so many times I don't even know anymore. But I was in, long before I was Orthodox, I was in a parish, and I was sent there to clean it up. And I had to ask some people to leave. And after they left, they, they discredited my name all over uh, the, the Metroplex. And I had to be really firm with them. And I didn't want to do it, but I had to be. And right after that, the bishop of the diocese called me. And he said, I think you've been too heavy-handed. I want you to call them and apologize. <laughs> and I spent about three days thinking... How am I going to do this? Because And I told him, I said, this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. You're perpetuating this problem. So, But it was his parish, and I was his representative, and what he wanted was not heresy or immorality. It was a matter of his opinion, and my job was to be obedient regardless. So I spent time trying to figure out how I was going to work that out. <laughs> Fortunately, a few minutes later, he, I mean, shortly after, he called me back. He said, you know, never mind. <laughs> I'll never forget that as long as I go, you know, wow. <laughs> but I learned a valuable lesson in that, and that is, and if you read about the monastics, they will talk about obedience. You do what the, what the spiritual father or the abbot says, and you don't act without his blessing. That's obedience or one form of it. We really, if we want to go on with this, we really have to learn this. And this is not perpetuated or even taught in American Christianity. It's not. Uh, doing our own thing is what is taught. Can you not see how the practice of obedience, just like the practice of obedience to parents that God calls us to in his law, <laughs> but the obedience all throughout the church, how it lends itself to the destruction of Satan in the first motion. Mm -hmm. The putting into practice of obedience out of love, honor, respect, and humility thwarts Satan when he comes to us and we yield to Christ rather than to him. It's practice, practice. That's when we're obedient, nothing is obvious. You know, Saint Sophronis. You say that. You say that. But Saint Sophronis, in, in one of his recent work, oh no, it was a book I read was written by uh, Herathius Vlachos, who's one of my favorite writers, and he wrote a biography of Saint Sophronis. And he said one of the things that Saint Sophronis did was that when someone would, people would come to him from all over the world, they knew that he was in touch with God and that he could reflect what God had to say. So when he gave them advice. He made it clear sometimes that the advice was purely from him 
and not from God, because if it were from God or they even thought it was, they would be violating a commandment if they didn't do it. Whereas if it came from him, all they were doing was disregarding him, and he didn't worry about that. That's the way he saw it. So he saw it as a sin or potential sin. So I, I always thought that was very, that was fascinating. It told me a whole lot about him. No wonder he's a saint. Uh, anyway. Also to learn detachment. Sort of address this in a, by implication today. Uh, to learn detachment, to detach ourselves from the things of this world. And, and we, we are in a consumerist society. So detachment is something that, that is hard to do. We're told to buy, 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 accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. I remember I used to collect, I used to refinish furniture, and sometimes I'd get a piece that couldn't be done, I'd take it apart and save the wood, reuse the wood for bookcases. And I also, believe it or not, saved the screws and the nails. So I had a couple of jars in the, in the garage of screws and nails, and I'd had them for 30 years. Uh, and we had some flooding in Wichita Falls, or near flooding, and we started dumping things that were going to be ruined. And, and so I thought, well, they'll get all rusted and everything, so I may as well get rid of them. And it was all I could do to part with the jars. <laughs> Just jars of screws that I hadn't opened in years. The, the tops were almost rusted shut, you know? Uh, and so I, I was so afraid to get rid of those, and, it, and I felt so good when I did. And every once in a while, you know, I'll need an extra screw or a nail, and I'll think, boy, I sure wish I had those jars again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't, and it, that's detachment. We get attached to all kinds of things. What if we lose everything? What if we lose everything? Do we just despair and give up, or do we keep moving? Detachment is to keep moving, because our real <laughs> attachment is God, and he gives us all things. Another one, learning to live by moral absolutes, the commandments, the canons, the church's definition of these things, and even the application. These are moral absolutes. They're not up for discussion. They're not the 10 or 12, the 10, 10 suggestions. You laugh, but you know, I used to hear that when I was in seminary in the 80s in the Episcopal Church as a joke. People would say it as a joke, the not the ten suggestions. And I thought, well, that's humorous. Until I learned that there was a, a writer who actually said that. A book called Situation Ethics it was famous in the 60s. So some of you are nodding your heads, you're familiar with the book. And he did say that there were ten suggestions and not ten commandments. They're not suggestions, they are commandments. Now, they are understanding them opens the door to all kinds of applications. For example, St. Paul says in one of his epistles to Timothy that a that bishop should be someone who's experienced in the faith and not a novice. Okay, that's a commandment. And yet when St. Ambrose was elected bishop of Milan in the fourth century, he wasn't even baptized. And he was a civil authority whom everyone knew. And the only reason why they elected him is he came in at the wrong time. And everybody liked him. So they said that was a sign from God. And he was the new bishop of Milan. Well, he had to be baptized. 
He had to be ordained into lower orders. He had to be ordained as a deacon, as a priest, as a bishop over a week's time, and then assigned to become the Archbishop of Milan. Well, Ambrose, I mean, so that's, that's called economia in the church. The, the church can say, when the, on occasion, there can be a good exception to the rule. And the church makes that decision. The bishop makes the decision of when economy is applied. We don't. So Ambrose was elected on the basis of the concept of economia. And what did he do? He set out to, to make sure that he lived up to the responsibility well. He taught himself the faith. He studied everything under the sun. And he became one of the great, he, in, the, he's, in the Western Rite tradition, he's one, considered one of the four doctors of the church. You sing hymns sometimes here. If you look down the bottom, it'll say St. Ambrose. <laughs> uh, he wrote the words. He was a great hymn writer, a great bishop. He even stood up to the emperor of Constantinople one time and threatened him with excommunication if he didn't bow, bow down to the church's decree. And the, and the, the emperor conceded. So, I mean, he was a wonderful, wonderful saint. And he shouldn't have been, according to the absolute, but one who doesn't know how the church operates or what the absolutes are or how they're applied would say that was a mistake. Really? He's proof that it wasn't. St. Augustine, who was converted by him, also lived with a woman when he was converted to the faith living outside of marriage. You can find grounds for that being rejected in the early church too. So the economia was pronounced in his name. He's, one, he's like one of the other four doctors of the Western tradition. So, anyway, we have to learn to live by moral absolutes. Learning discernment, not everything that comes to us is from God, and we have to learn this. This is one of our, our works. And so the devil can suggest things, and how do we know the difference? Through learning discernment. You know, Father, you could say St. Paul was economia when it comes to all of the apostles. Yeah. If you look at it, mm -hmm. he had no business persecutor of Christians when he was called to yeah. do so. You know? Yeah, you're right. Economia doesn't mean that the rules are not absolute. It just means there's an absolute way to apply them. Knowing our failures and making no excuses for them. We all have stuff. We can't excuse ourselves. The enemy, remember that, that thing from the stake pipe letters, your job is ifing, anding, and budding. So we, we if, and what if, what if, what if, and what about, uh, but, 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 there's no excuse for that. We need to admit our sins and move, in, move on. It's what we don't want to learn. But this is how we undermine the first motions and don't get dragged into sin. Learning forgiveness for ourselves and for others. I struggled for a long time forgiving myself. It was a hard lesson for me to learn. I just couldn't imagine how God could ever forgive me. I had to learn. It was one of my lessons. Some of you may struggle with the same thing. At the same time, it's interesting because we can have a hard time forgiving ourselves or maybe have an easy time forgiving ourselves and we have no problems not forgiving others which is putting ourselves in the place of God. 
So the minute we see anyone in this room committing any kind of a sin, we start getting judgment, judgmental and angry and resentful and accusatory and all kinds of things. Notice how in the press, they, they, they raise one flag about somebody and it's like the person is an absolute wretch. And we all buy into it. Well, they wouldn't have brought that up if it weren't true. Well, it may or may not be, I don't know. We don't know. So we need to learn forgiveness the way Christ said to do it. If you haven't, if you haven't read St. Nikolai Velimirovich's prayer for enemies, you need to go online and read it. It will shock you. you, you you've read it, haven't you, Karen? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he was in prison, but it's when he points out how enemies, enemies by accusing us, point out our sins, and it's good for our humility to have that kind of uh, uh, pointing out of our sins or accusation. It's really powerful. It'll it'll shock you, but it's so powerful. Nikolai Velimirovich, a contemporary saint. So we need to learn forgiveness. Another thing about this is that. When we allow first motions to hang on, something I call handles. It's, I, I see things in images, so I get pictures, and sometimes I see when I yield to certain temptations constantly, repeatedly, it's like the enemy has a handle on me. You know how you have the luggage and stuff with detachable handles, and I feel like it's a detachable handle that's been screwed onto the back of me, uh, and it's got a name on it, and all you have to do is just grab it and yank, and he's got me. So. We, when we repent and we acknowledge our sins and struggle against them, we remove the handles from us. And that's what we want to do. He can't manipulate us when the handles are removed. And he can and will uh, try to when we allow the handles to remain. Now, the next ones are just sort of peripheral, but they're important too. Learn the rituals of the church. The rituals of the church are the way they are for a reason. You know, the priest facing east instead of west like everybody else does. You know, I've told you this before, but when the priest faces east, we see through him. When he's facing east, he represents us before Christ. And when he turns around and faces us, he represents Christ to us. That's his job so if we turn them around all the time, then we have someone who represents us uh, just turn around facing us. And notice what happens with your vision. When you, see, when you do it the way the church says, we see through him to eternity. I don't know about you, but I do. And when he turns around, then it suddenly stops. If he's there all the time facing me, my, act, my vision does not see through him to eternity, but stops at the altar. And by the way, for those of you who don't know this, and in England, at least, at the Reformation, when they turned the priest around, they didn't really turn him around. They turned him to one end of the altar. So try to imagine this now. If this were the altar up there in the church right now, and instead of me standing there with my face to the congregation, they put me over here on the side. Do you realize how absurd that looks? You'd be going, get me out of here. <laughs> You can see why it took them nearly uh, 60 years to get the Reformation entrenched in England because of that, resistance to that. So there's a reason for what we do in the church. There's a reason for it. 
and we may not understand it, that's okay. We need to do it. I can tell you as a priest, I learned long ago, do what it says. Remember, there's a, on the chalice, there's a little square thing called a pole uh, that goes on the top of the chalice. Uh, and it says, take it off, put it on, take it off, put it on. You know, and, and it's a nuisance. It's easy. When I was in the Episcopal Church, we would just take it off and set it aside, not even touch it after that, because it was such a nuisance. But then when I learned to do what it said, even before I became Orthodox, I noticed that it remained on the chalice during the consecration, except the elevation, almost like it represented Christ in the tomb, and so it remained on there until the end of the consecration, at which it was like the resurrection. And the first person who could look into the chalice was the apostolic representative, who then turned around to the congregation and said, Behold the Lamb of God. See, if you take that pall off and get rid of it, because we don't want to be bothered by it, all that is gone. It's all gone. We don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be deprived of that. <laughs> So the, we learn the rituals. There's a reason. Learn the church's music. <laughs> we can't update the music and do a decent job. We can't. Several, several of you have told, told me how you've been touched by the, the, the Misa Marialis music to the Curie Laison. <laughs> and it's absolutely fabulous. And it's centuries, centuries old. I love it too. I just... I get caught up. When the music is proper, when it is ancient, we are drawn, the music draws us into what's happening. It sucks us in. So new music uh, simply replaces all that, takes that away. It's dangerous. So we want to adapt to the music and even learn it. Lastly, no, not lastly, learn to revere and flourish in holy space. It's, it's something we must learn to treat that building like it's holy space. Even in the Bible, you see people have visions of God, and they mark those places, and those are seen as holy places forever after. So this is a holy place, but there's another place that's even more holy, and it's right here. God has come. God has manifest, manifested himself. And once this begins to be cleaned up and made right, then we can see those other places. That's a holy place. Do you realize that every Sunday we are privileged to come here and to be together and God is manifesting himself on the altar in the sacrament and giving his life to us? I like, I'm starting to see something that I really like, and that is from the offertory or from the beginning of the salutation through the Sanctus, is a vision of the Father as found in the Old Testament. And in the, what do they call it? The institution, the words of Christ are the manifestation of God in his action and redemption through the working of, in person and working of Christ. And then the invoking of the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts and elements. Three visions of the one God done for us, or we participate in them on the altar. Wow. It's, we're being sucked in, so to speak. Um, drawn into it. And why would we want to change that? You know, 
This is why the, the epiclesis, the invoking of the Holy Spirit, is so specific in orthodoxy. For those of you who come from other traditions, you know it's there, but it's very weak, very weak. And you don't get that sense that the Holy Spirit's actually present and act, uh, operating. So this is specific because they want us to see this because it's so inherent in what we do. And the devil doesn't want us to see it. So he's going to throw out for much. Oh, come on. It ought to just do what you want to do. Nope. Learning to attend. If something like that's going on, he definitely doesn't want us here. So, you know, you stayed up late last night watching movies, binge-watching movies all night. You can't get up and go to church in the morning. Uh, besides, they're all hypocrites, yeah, especially the clergy. <laughs> so I don't like these guys anyway, you know. So we have to learn, we have to discipline ourselves to attend. And, and when we do, we strike down the first motion is don't go. Learning focus, that is when we come here, this is the hardest thing to focus, pay attention. You know, what's going on is just, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, my mind is bouncing, bouncing. I mean, if you can imagine a ball bouncing around the building off the walls, but just keep perpetually, that's my head. Um, and it's just bouncing around, and I'm having, really having to do, it's my spiritual combat. My spiritual battle is to focus and stay focused and to work on focusing. And so I know some of you battle with that too. It's something we have to learn. This is more than just some ritual that's been given to us. We are entering into eternity and we have to train ourselves. We have to participate with God in being trained to see and to understand and to participate in it. And lastly, bringing it all back to learn then to identify and reject first motions. So when my mind starts to bounce around and I, and I try to collect my thoughts uh, and the enemy is saying, oh, don't worry about it. Just let it happen. It's who you are. Uh, well, it isn't. And so that's the summation of those things. How do we respond to the first motions? Recognize our true kingdom. Live by objective truth. Learn true spiritual goals. Learn submission and obedience. Practice detachment. Learn the moral absolutes. Discernment. Learning discernment. Making no excuses for our sins. Forgiveness. And then learning the church's music, revering sacred space, learning to attend, focus, rejecting first motions. That's a lot. But we can do it because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I, I, I end with, with this quote that I started out with some weeks back. 99 out of 100 of them never once in their lives get up from bed in the morning with the thought that the forthcoming day will involve a battle in the greatest war of all and that their commander is sending them on a mission only they can accomplish. Instead, they think of their planet not as a battlefield but as a bathtub. Be sure to keep the water tepid. At the right moment, we pull the plug. What delight to contemplate their surprise and terror as they discover they can go down the drain. This... Craved is Roman Catholic, but that last line is Orthodox. <laughs> you know, people say, well, once saved, always saved. Well, that's not teaching of Christ or of the church. And usually when you press people on that, you say, well, what about someone who clearly accepts Christ and then falls away into sin and decadence? And the answer is almost always, well, that person was never saved to begin with. Well, that's what we say, <laughs> sort of. The end of the life is what determines. Where we are at the end is what determines it, what matters.
How do we finish? And so for those of us who are on the journey, we want to finish well. And we can't say, well, I'll wait till I'm nearly dead before I do something because we might die. You know, that parable that Jesus put in there where the guy said, well, you know, I'll build bigger silos for my grain. And, and he said, fool, this day your soul is required of you. We can't wait. So if we get on it early and we're at it all our lifetimes, okay, we've reaped the harvest and benefited from it so much. Anyway, I think the next time you're going to do Mass, attendance at Mass. and Next time we're going to, next two times, <coughs> continuing in this, we're going to look at the very things Satan wants to keep us away from almost the most. Next week we're going to look at confession. Why does Satan work so hard to keep us from Christ in confession? And then the liturgy, the Eucharist, the Mass, the experience of paradise. Why does he work so hard to keep us from that? And then guess what? Lent. <laughs> Practice what we preach. Anyway, thank you all.